So, you're like in this. Yeah. Yeah, because I was just blowing smoke up your ass, bro. Thought about calling the cops. Please don't. Not yet. I don't have a speech. I just need you to trust me, please. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 80, back to Cole's choice. What did you choose this time? I chose Blue Ruin from 2013, directed and written by Jeremy Saunier, starring Macon Blair, Amy Hargraves, Devin Ratray, Kevin Colick, Eve Plum, David Thompson, Brent Wersner, Stacy Rock, and Sidney Anderson. It's about a young man who has been living on the fringes of society and what ensues when he discovers that the man who had been in prison for killing his parents is being released. He goes back home to seek his revenge and things begin to unravel. This was Sonia's second feature, but my first experience with his work. The same for you? It was, and I'm assuming that means you went back to watch Murder Party. I did. I've since gone back and watched it, and I enjoyed it. It's apples and oranges, though, for me. It's a fun diversion, and even though it has some gruesome set pieces in it, it does not have the same gravity as this, obviously. I'm glad I saw Blue Ruin first. This one knocked me back on my heels. The film opens with a series of still lifes. It's a comfortable, calm environment. It's shot crisply and cleanly, and we meet our protagonist, whom we will come to know is Dwight, bathing. We also quickly come to realize that this is not his place. His bath is interrupted when the rightful owners come home and he runs, jumps out the window. And coming back to this after having watched it multiple times, what struck me in this viewing was that sense that life is going on around him, but he exists apart from it. So this house is in use. There's a family continuing to exist without knowing that he exists. They will soon come to realize that he exists, though, and this scene establishes two things within just a few moments. This recurring theme of the disruption of domesticity that is all up and down the line in this film, and the other thing being Sonier's precision behind the camera. He also functioned as his own cinematographer on this. That's his background, and his camera work is as clean as his screenplay. I really enjoy it. I said that this knocked me back on my heels. It was clear that this was something special from these very first few frames. I appreciate its style so much. It doesn't adhere to the handheld aesthetic that has become so overused in each of the worlds that this film has a foot in, the indie art house realm and the action thriller genre. I was so glad to see tension built through story and performance instead of cliched, exaggerated handheld work and frantic editing. This film famously got off the ground after a Kickstarter campaign, and I love reading what Jeremy Saulnier talks about in the spirit of discovering these tools that he couldn't have used 10 years before this, reaching out for help when he realized he would need it, and then capitalizing on something that would cost less and allow him to really show what he can do. So at no point do I feel the lack of anything. 
It's amazing, too, when you think about it, because they really started out to try to secure funding for it, and that initially didn't work. And so much of this falls firmly in the territory of necessity is the mother of invention, simplifying scenes by reducing the number of shots in them, attaching the camera to the top of the grip truck. And I think it shows people who are driven to make something great that they believe in. And in this specific instance, they thought this might be their last opportunity to make a feature. Well, Dwight is living on the beach out of his car, the blue ruin that's referred to in the title. It's rusted. The sea air has been rough on it. It looks like it's been used for target practice. We go along with him as he's dumpster diving against the backdrop of the ironically named amusement park, for Dwight anyway, Funland. The time that this opening takes, and it's really not much, it's very concentrated, but the time that it takes to establish Dwight's character is vital. I really like this touch of Dwight reading in the car. It's a nice character note. What do we know about him so far? Something has obviously set him adrift, but not so far that he's forgotten the stability that routine provides or the blessing of creature comforts. He's not violent or confrontational, but he's not above skirting the law. His reading implies that he's thoughtful, not uncivilized. It's very efficient character building. We feel like we know him quickly, and even more importantly, I think, he is sympathetic right away. The reading by the overhead light, that was my absolute favorite touch here as well. And I think if you look at his hands, you can tell that he's not your typical quote-unquote street person. There's a different softness and cleanliness to his hands. I never got the idea, even the first time I saw this, that his circumstance was based on possibly a substance abuse. He's just a different sort. He seems completely set apart from everyone else, and he makes me want to know what has happened to him. I'm right there with you. And the thing that I appreciate about it to begin with is that we do so much of that work as the audience. So much of this is wordless to begin with, so you know it is winning me over already. The last thing that struck me are all the pains he takes to stay, again, apart from everyone else. At no point is he reaching out for help, talking with anyone else, asking for anything. He is finding his own sustenance and deliberately almost hiding from other people, those scenes under the boardwalk. Always a few steps behind everyone else, but not really watching them. He has forged one relationship, it seems like, and we see our evidence of that in this first significant spoken exchange that we have when a police officer finds him. In fact, she doesn't so much track him down as come to exactly where she knows he is. The implication is that he's a fixture, that they have crossed paths so much that an affection has developed. My next favorite moment in a sea of favorite moments is how she addresses him. Dwight, sweetheart. We know that this is going to be totally different than anything else that we've seen. Exactly. She calls him by name. She reaches out to him. She's gentle and compassionate in her manner. It's a small role in a film full of small roles, and Sidney Anderson is so great in it. He asks if it's news about the house. Again, Saunier giving meaningful pieces of the puzzle in these fleeting moments of elliptical conversation. The implications of that question could be quite significant. It's not welcome news as it turns out. He's given information about someone's release, and it's enough of a shock that he zones out. He drifts away. He has a decision to make. There's nothing else he needs to hear anyone say. Even someone like this officer who clearly cares about him and has his best interests at heart. I think it's incredibly important that she establishes for us when she says, I thought you should be somewhere safe when you found out, that though he is clearly a grown adult, 
his childhood, whatever happened in his childhood is still front and center. And it doesn't feel as though he has either moved on from it or evolved from it. It's how I would imagine you treating a child in that situation. How often in a revenge thriller do you feel like you know and like everyone you meet in the first act? This meeting with the police officer is followed by a characteristically subtle, subversive moment of truth. We find Dwight in the ocean, but we don't get the usual close-up to telegraph his intention. Those clues will come, but Saulnier reserves this as a private moment for Dwight, and I love that. It's a long shot. He's alone, facing away. The other inversion here that I really enjoy is that the recipient of most baptisms come out clean, whole, renewed. This is quite the opposite. Dark things have been set in motion, and here's where we start getting those clues as to Dwight's decision. You know no good is going to come of him buying that map. And I had just assumed, based on the shape of the car, that it was no longer functional. I kind of got the idea that he basically ran out of gas there and essentially ran out of options. But that's not the case. So we see him putting gas in the car, getting a new battery. So clearly this is going to be, along with the gun, we see him perusing an instrument. And then another fascinating thing, he doesn't buy the gun. He buys a postcard instead, and we see him writing in what looks to me a kid's hand and sending that off, which to me signals point of no return. I'm setting off on something. Saunier has such efficient film grammar. It's not flashy. It's just clean and direct filmmaking, simple but beautiful tracking shots, subtle push-ins, Frequent but not showy camera movement that reminds me a little of The Long Goodbye. I know that's a big comparison, at least in my book, but I actually want to go even bigger than the Altman example. Blue Ruin makes me think of John Ford in that there is literally nowhere better to put the camera in any given scene than where Saulnier puts it. It's simple setups, minimal handheld work, just when it's practical, and even then it's very controlled. It's shot in a very classic style. And Saulnier's background with music actually put me in mind of another odd comparison, a non-film comparison. When I watch Blue Ruin, I think that Saulnier is to directing what Todd Trainer, the drummer for Shellac, is to music. Crisp, clean, elliptical, huge impact, only gives you exactly what is necessary. What he doesn't do is just as important as what he does. There's a sense of humor in the work in surprising places. That kind of care and precision is definitely on display in these sections shot in Delaware. From what I understand, they closely followed the storyboards in these opening sequences. I don't know if things loosened up once they got to Virginia. They obviously still had a great deal at stake, so I'm sure they didn't feel like they had a lot of margin for error. I'm so glad you mentioned music here, because this was definitely a rewatch, and so, as is the point of rewatching, I found things that I hadn't thought about before. And one of those was finally noticing the use of sound and music. And I had not thought about the long goodbye, but that seems like a perfect comparison to how I felt about this. At the beginning, we signal that life is going on around us by the use of the TV running downstairs, turning the tap on and off in order to listen for the telltale signs that the family is coming back. There's the ocean. There's the music from the boardwalk. There's the music playing inside the pawn shop. And we're about to get to a bar as well. And the only sound is what's happening inside, which we don't see. It's not the world that we're participating in. It's so fascinating to me to see how the music and sound is woven into this. 
Well, I mentioned the simple setups. Here's a great example. Since he couldn't buy a gun in the pawn shop, he decides to steal a gun. This scene where he's breaking into the truck was originally conceived of as a series of nine shots, but it ends up just being one single unbroken take, which I think works in its favor. I think that that's one of the real great strengths of the film. In fact, so often when we are with Dwight, we are with him for long, uninterrupted stretches. It's one of the things that helps us subconsciously relate to him. We get to carefully regard his face instead of there being a cut every three seconds. And it's such a great expressive face. I'm a little bit ashamed of my contribution to this specific episode. <laughs> Why is that? I mentioned the sound and the music that really occurred to me in this viewing, but I feel like I need to watch this 10 more times because I find myself so trained on Macon Blair's face, I never want to look away. So I'm wondering if other major examples of cinematic artistry on display here completely went by me. So what I'm saying is, basically, you're going to have to do the heavy lifting in this episode. Okay. Well, he manages to steal the gun, but it has a trigger lock. It's useless, and he destroys the gun trying to get it unlocked. And therein lies another major source of Dwight's appeal and relatability. He's not good at this stuff. Unlike practically every other film in the genre, he doesn't automatically transform into an accomplished assassin. This is the linchpin film in what Saulnier refers to as his inept protagonist trilogy that started with Murder Party and culminated in Green Room. Unlike Liam Neeson, Dwight is a man with absolutely no discernible set of skills. And that's what he set out to create, to explore this idea that a person has the highest stakes imaginable in front of them and no tools with which to combat or deal with those stakes. And there's definitely inherent comedy in that and a deep well of sadness. And I think that I read that Macon Blair, during the process of working with Jeremy Saulnier while he was writing this, specifically for Macon Blair, Macon Blair said, don't you want to go with someone who is that traditional action star, a guy with big muscles, a badass? And Saulnier knew, of course, that that would be the absolute wrong move, and that he had the perfect performer in Macon Blair to bring this character to life. So he's without a gun, without a plan but he still has to keep pressing on. The timeline is definitely moving forward with or without him. The family that we will come to know as the Clelands picks up their brother, the killer, Wade, at the prison in a limo while Dwight watches. I do think it's important here to note that we see one family member apparently resisting getting out to welcome Wade. We just see that person's arm. Every scene impresses me with what Saulnier puts into this screenplay. There's that little detail... There's Teddy's pink shirt, which you don't expect to see as part of a family of criminal masterminds. They're a very normal-looking family. They are our villains in the piece, and yet they are just as relatable as our protagonist in some ways. They may not be us the way we feel like Dwight is, but they're definitely people we know. I always immediately think of my dad's brothers in these cases. The landscape is definitely familiar to me, and I could relate to those people as well. They look like my family members, too. Well, Dwight follows them to the bar where they're going to celebrate. In preparation for this confrontation, he puts his keys around his neck on a chain. We've seen him do this once already, and the second time, now it already strikes me as a classic Dwight move. Works on two levels. It's another demonstration that he's not prepared for this... He's doing a thing that in his normal life would be useful and handy, but that does not translate to the world that he is stepping into now. His instinct is that this will reduce his margin for error, and it might in his everyday, but here it is a grave error. So he goes in. 
another one of those instances in which we're walking with him toward his inexorable fate, that we have time to think about this the way he is, with minimal distraction. It's never really explicit, but some of our discomfort, I think, comes from knowing that he has no plan. This is key, understanding how he must feel, being able to relate in his situation. Relatively few people kill, and most of those instances are not planned. Even fewer are professionals or feel they have no other choice. It's not a sensation that the majority of us will ever have to process. And the biggest emotion that I'm feeling, and that I'm feeling coming from him, is sheer terror. This is one slight person against an entire family, against a convicted double murderer. This is why Macon Blair is the absolute key to the success of this movie for me. Most of the time when I hear the phrase, every man, that's a negative for me. To me, that connotes someone so bland, so insipid that anyone could latch on to the character. It's a tribute to his ability that Dwight can be an avatar for all of us and still have such distinct character. We see his hands shaking. We see him cover his mouth which is what I would imagine I would have to do in order to stop myself from screaming. He's hidden himself in the bathroom. He's literally come in through the back door to do this. He is inside of one of the stalls, and when two men come in, he has to wait for one to leave so that he's left just with Wade. And there's no time for him to even get the jump on Wade because Wade sees him in the mirror watching him. So Dwight lunges out with that knife, and gets him in the throat. This was incredibly startling. I know you gasp when that initial cut is made, even though you'd seen it before. How do you feel from the moment Dwight steps into that stall to lie in wait? How do you characterize Saulnier's way with suspense? I think that's an interesting question, because it feels like everything happens so fast at that moment. We've had time to think about the lead-up to this. We've had time to think about, please, Dwight, turn back. This is not going to work. We've had all of these moments building up to this one irrevocable single moment. And yet, Wade doesn't die right away. So it's dreadful suspense. And I think even more poignant because it's all over so quickly. And I don't mean just the act. Already the repercussions have happened as the act is happening. Because this killing manages to get even worse, there's time for Wade to actually pick up Dwight. Dwight gets that second blow in, which is right in the temple. Again, we're forced to watch what actually happens in this killing. There's no cutting away. He does this foul deed and makes good his escape, stabbing their tire and flattening it in the process. Of course, he cuts himself badly because nothing is clean, nothing is easy in this. And he gets back to his car, but he discovers that he dropped his keys in this melee. Did I mention that he is not good at this? He has to steal the limo that he has debilitated, just one more stone that he's left in his own path. And surprise, that kid that wouldn't get out of the car at the prison was also still in the car at the bar. He has, unwittingly, taken a hostage. Dwight cannot catch a break. He quickly pulls over and they get out. He obviously didn't intend to take this kid. Who asks, did you hurt Wade? Yeah, Wade hurt my parents. This is beautifully played, like a man who has been in darkness for a long time coming into the light. I don't think he did, the kid says. There goes Sonia again, planting these seeds. Do you remember what you felt the first time that piece of information was delivered? In the span of about 45 seconds in that sequence, my stomach drops about three separate times, that being the final time. As much as I winced when he cut his hand, stabbing the tire, 
and as shocking a moment it was when the kid started to knock on the window of the car, him dropping that piece of information on him probably hurt the most of anything that happened in that entire sequence. Because we have no righteous quest, really. I mean, if we ever did. And truly, I don't know if I am just maybe slow, or again, if I was just so transfixed by what was in front of me and trying to keep up at the same rate that Dwight is. But some of these pieces didn't occur to me until later. One being who this young man is. I had this fleeting thought, which I won't mention right now. And two was thinking, oh, finally later. He left his own car behind. Surely that's going to come back to haunt him at some point. Well, Dwight is covered in blood now, and his Andrew W.K. party outfit does nothing to conceal it. He has to change everything now. We see a second home invasion that echoes the first and also echoes that initial baptism, inversions and all. Though no amount of going down to the river is going to wash this one clean anymore. He's still a new man in a way, though. He shaves the beard, wraps the hands, steals some clothes. He can blend in now. What struck me here is that this baptism and him shaving that long beard, it doesn't make him stronger. He looks like a baby. He looks like the teen he never grew out of. And what happens after this, I think, only reinforces that idea. That instead of moving forward, which he is physically doing, he's regressing. He watches the news to see if they report the crime, but there is no mention of it. And he makes his way to a gas station and hitches a ride. The only thing I can think of in this section was how, at least in the short term, the criminal always has the advantage. This is what's working in his favor right now. This is one of those things that you can put on your how to get away with it checklist. Did we mention that that's what our true crime podcast is going to be about? Giving you the blueprint to committing the perfect crime one episode at a time? Wait, I never signed up for that. If it works, I'm not saying we have to go halvesies or anything, but you know, patreon.com slash magicallantern. I guess because I married you, I am required to go with all of your schemes. I'll compromise with you. We can put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode, maybe. Anyway, he gets to his sister Sam's, and this is another great performance, this time from Amy Hargraves. She seems so attuned to Dwight in a way that only siblings can pick up, I feel like. I completely buy it. She knows something is up. She gets right down to it. She asks about the car and his delivery on that line. It's gone. Is note perfect. It was such a collaborative process for Sonia and Blair. I wonder about these little moments that I love so much. How much was actor's intuition and how much of those things were direction? And he specifically talked about how amazing Amy was here, giving everything that she had so that she could help Macon Blair through his performance, weeping off screen while she was working lines with him. And I definitely can't speak to the sibling relationship because I don't have one. And all I could think was, would that this were only about money. Her is what I presume to be the older sister. At least that's the role that she's had to fulfill. She talks about knowing that Wade was let out because she was the one who was notified. She was the one that had to be told about the restraining order. She's the one that had to manage the estate and his things while he basically checked out. This whole scene is perfect to me, right down to the detail of one of Dwight's button-down collar buttons being undone. He says, I'm not used to talking this much. I love this character. Sam knows this about him, and she knows it's no coincidence that he's here, and then he drops that confession. My confession, I thought about doing this for our opening scene, but I did not want to sully it with our jackanapery. 
our antics, our capering. This scene is like one of the greatest heavyweight championships I have ever seen. They are sitting there so quietly, but landing these exquisitely performed emotional haymakers back and forth. And then that catch-up request that is so jarring happens. It's frightening even in how quickly it brings us crashing back to Earth. I've heard some people say that they think it disrupts the scene, but those people are bonkers. I think it had to happen. And if we had done that scene, I would have wanted to have a third person in there to be able to play that character. Because after Dwight has said that he has killed Wade, Sam says, I'm glad he's dead and I hope he suffered. And I understand what she is saying. And yet we are still existing in the real world here. We don't make these pronouncements and then the scene ends. We're in a public place. Other people could be listening. The world keeps turning regardless of these things that we have done. And it's brilliant for you as a viewer, too. It makes you fully, suddenly aware of how much your guts are tied in knots. Something you might not be completely conscious of if the scene were allowed to simply ebb away. This film was already on its way onto my favorites list, but this scene in the diner put it on another level. It cemented the deal. With Blue Ruin, Macon Blair turned in my favorite performance in the last 10 years. Maybe longer. And I will stand on Michael Shannon's coffee table in my cowboy boots and say that. Not something I say lightly with how much I love his work with Jeff Nichols, especially Take Shelter. So Take Shelter and Blue Ruin, those have got to be two Desert Island films, don't you think? Without a doubt. And so again, the world keeps turning and Dwight is realizing these further repercussions. He now knows that he has put his sister's family in danger. Right, because during the course of the discussion, they realize the Clelands never called the police. The sinister implication of that being that they're going to take care of it themselves. It feels like that this is the one time that anything Dwight learned from the movies about how these things usually go actually came in handy. They rush home to the kids. They're safe. But Sam hits him. She's so angry. He's put her and her family in mortal danger and she's conflicted. She's had considerably less time to process this than he has. But her character is so well drawn and they play on that older sibling feeling that you mentioned with that, you get the clear impression that she wouldn't need as much time as Dwight would. She leaves with the kids, but not before one last verbal knife in the guts. I'd forgive you if you were crazy, but you're not. You're weak. I know we talked about you being an only child before, so it might not play the same for you, but goddamn the familial weight of that line. I would bet 20 gazillion dollars that whoever wrote that line has a sibling. I love that choice. To have her character make Dwight stand outside while she's trying to process this information, she can't even have him in the same room with her. And the important point here, just to connect that last dot, is that the car has been registered to her the whole time, so they have a direct way to hit at him through her. Now, Megan Blair was obviously new to me with this. Amy Hargraves was too. I still haven't seen shame somehow. I think them being unknown quantities was such an advantage for me as a viewer in this case. It freed me from having any associations or preconceived notions about them to get in the way. I could just sit back and marvel at the work. Was it the same for you? It definitely was. Eve Plum was the only name that I recognized. And then when we get to Devin Rattray's performance, he rung a bell for me. Everyone else was brand new for me. And so all I could do was watch them and try to understand what they were feeling go on this journey helplessly with them. And thank goodness there's no weak link at any moment in this cast. These were all people who were more than up to this challenge. Sam leaves, and Dwight prepares for a siege. It's the Home Alone section of the film. 
The Cleveland show up in his car, no less. I guess that's only fair. They probably messed up all his radio presets. All joking aside for a second, that is a great suspense sequence. Dwight has looked outside, noted a car across the street. Some time goes by. He has to turn off the tea kettle again because he thinks that he hears something, and he does. And so the next time he goes to look out, there's his car. I like the pitchfork as his weapon of choice in this. There's an old-time retribution in that that ties in with a much bigger theme that actually I may be imposing on the film that's not there. And that's how this notion of family settling it between themselves feels like an old regional tradition to me. An old-timey blood feud, as it were. Yeah, I know family feuds realistically go back as far as humans do, but this particular strain of it puts me in mind of what Grail Marcus called the old weird America, an idea that I love. I know when he coined it, he was talking specifically about music, but I have built up that idea in my head, romanticized it so that it takes on so much more. Wise Blood, for instance. Howard Finster's Garden. Eternal Indomitable Kudzu Vines. I've built this whole southern gothic world in my brain around that idea that is both horrible and wondrous. And Blue Ruin is right at home in that world. And music does remain a big part of it. This even slots in neatly that way. I can imagine the Ballad of Dwight echoing down through the holler years from now. My mom grew up in Wildcat Holler, by the way. (laughs) Really? Is that true? That is 100% true. Would you have preferred Old Dominion as a title for this? It was one that they bandied about, as far as I know. I am a native Virginian, by the way. I think that would have given a different connotation to me and an idea of maybe even gentility. So I think Blue Ruin was an amazing choice. So the Clevelands begin to break into the house. Sonnier has switched to handheld here to navigate the house, but again, so smart in the way that he uses it to amplify the urgency without resorting to shaky cam hysterics. I think this could go toe-to-toe with any thriller, any horror film sequence. Dwight manages to escape and retrieve his car in the process. He hits one of them, actually, and takes a shotgun. The other one with a crossbow gets away. And Dwight is distracted by his need to interrogate. Were you coming for me or for her? Referring to his sister. Not good timing, Dwight. You can do that later when you are not being shot at. He gets away, but not before he takes a crossbow bolt in the leg. Another toll exacted as a result of his inability to make the right call when the chips are down. And the process of trying to use the car door and a saw to break off this arrow is as horrifying as it sounds. He has to remove this crossbow bolt. You can't just leave it there. And we have this trip to the pharmacy to pick up implements for self-surgery, including superglue. Again, another great use of that diegetic music. That tinkly muzak that any of us can instantly recognize whenever we would hear the ding go off into those double doors to get inside of any pharmacy anywhere in the U.S. If I wasn't already in the tank for Dwight, you know that I am now. This is a man after my own heart. As you can attest to, there has never been anything wrong with me that my trusty Swiss Army knife could not fix. I just rolled my eyes, dear listeners. I wish I could go on a murderer's rampage so I had an excuse to pull arrows out of my leg with pliers. Doctors are a racket. Whatever they are going to charge you is too much. Get an estimate, and I, armed only with Swiss Army technology, will do it for half the price. That's the magic lantern guarantee. Well, appropriately for the film, Dwight can't manage it. At every turn, this is not the average Joe turns into a stone killer that you always see. He walks into the ER. I had an accident on my leg. (laughs) It's so great. The whole sequence from the exchange with the pharmacist to his collapse in the hospital, all of that stuff is so darkly funny. And I could tell 
as he was going at that prosthetic leg effect with the pliers, you were having a regular chuckle fest down on the other end of the couch. I full-on had to cover my eyes. That was awful. That was my stomach dropping. Well, he slips out of the hospital and returns to the car, where his hostage is, fortunately, still alive in the trunk. I think the best detail here is Dwight putting his ear to the trunk to see if he can hear any activity inside. As he prepares for this showdown, he plays all this with such a beautiful resignation. Again, it's not overt, but everywhere he goes, we get the feeling he is acknowledging silently to himself that he is never coming back here again. And it's all still eminently relatable, still easy to feel that his doom is our doom. His next move is something that would make sense to a lot of us that are not denizens of the underworld. Where will he get a gun? An old friend, obviously. It's that last moment of regression, going back to his yearbook, going back to this old friend searching him out. We have another nice character beat in which pressing murder business is no reason not to be polite to someone's mama, and he's put in touch with his old friend Ben. It's been a long time, and we know that because of the single most punk rock piece of exposition I have ever heard in a film. Last time they saw each other was right around the time when El Duce got hit by that train, a detail that I love I'm sorry to say I had to look up what that meant. Ah, okay. Not a big Mentors fan, were you? Inadvertently not a big Mentors <laughs> okay. fan. I just hadn't heard of them. Well, his death was just so weird, and he was such a big personality, if you want to call it that, that it's one of those things that will stick in my head forever. Puts me right in a very specific time and place. The only thing that could have taken me to a more specific galvanizing place was if they had said, yeah, you left right after D. Boone's car crash. But that would have made them about 11, so that wouldn't have made any sense. What about where you were when Tesla released Signs? <laughs> I think we were singing along to different songs in our bedroom at that point. I think mine might have been when Bobby Brown left New Edition. <laughs> okay. And we mentioned this before, but Devin Rattray here as Ben is terrific. We know that he's a vet, which is going to be very important, and they have that shared history. And we see those glimpses as well of what Ben had to do when... Dwight just left. The roles that everyone had to take on, the pieces that they had to pick up in his absence. This sequence with Ben is my second favorite after the diner scene. Two excellent actors doing just exactly what needs to be done. They cultivate such a distinct feeling of taking one last shot at cashing in on a fading bonhomie, hoping there's enough of that goodwill left in the tank to get you over this last hill, and doing all of that on a clock. If you're Dwight, you're in no position to make demands. You are completely in Ben's hands, and you have to choose your words so carefully. Ben, I need to hurry. I don't have a speech. I just need you to trust me. That face is his secret weapon. I could not turn this guy down. I'm thinking back to that question you asked me earlier about what if they had gone with another title, for example, Old Dominion. That would have put the character of Ben at a disadvantage, I think. To me, that suggests he's going to be a good old boy, which is what he is not. This is a different time, and this person is driven by different motivations, and I'm so glad we got to see those pay off. Devin Rattray's participation is another one of those strokes of luck. He came in to actually audition for a different part, one that he was too young for, but they found a fantastic way to use him, an even better way to use him, in fact. I think this character might be... Not quite neck and neck with Dwight, but a real contender for audience favorite. He's a hero. I could see him, that character, in his own film. I would definitely want to watch that. So finally, after all this time, we get to the why of it all. And I think this scene with Teddy in the trunk of the car is a nice, tight way 
to deliver exposition through interrogation. It's not obtrusive. It's a brilliant construction, really, for three reasons. One, we want to know. We've been waiting a long time now to find out, so we're anxious to get to it. It's not awkwardly shoehorned into a scene where we don't care or we might miss it. We crave an explanation at this point. Two, it's like the rest of the film. It's efficient at delivering character and plot simultaneously. We find out what we need to know about everyone's motives and some family history, and that's pretty much all. But we also learn more about Dwight's hopelessness and Teddy's cruelty, depending on who has the gun. And three, it further aligns us with Dwight. You may not realize it until the exact moment it happens, but when Ben saves him from Teddy, you practically want to stand up and cheer. I think it's a beautiful touch that Ben misses the first shot because nothing in Dwight's universe works right the first time. I disagree with you just a bit there about Teddy's cruelty. To me, it was more about honesty above all things and the commitment and that he just had a bit more of that street sense. I only say that because the only bits of information Teddy gives are the things that are going to hurt Dwight emotionally. I love the fact, again, coming back to this landscape that I recognize, that Dwight's question to Teddy is, which one are you trying to place him in this family? That's something I've heard many times in my life. Second only to, now who's your daddy? This is not your typical movie blood feud. This is the more realistic vision of the world that I'm used to, which is that in towns like this, your families are intertwined all the time. I mentioned before where my mother's from. My dad grew up in a neighboring small town. They went to the same high school, which meant that my mom's sister and my dad's sisters went to the same high school with them. They were in the same classes together. Then their kids were in the same classes with those neighbors' kids, too. I could name off family names that have been with me forever. And so often when you meet someone, those degrees of connection are numerous. And you mentioned we finally get to that why, and it is big. Teddy connects these last dots for us. And to me, it only further humanizes the entire process and everyone in it. So in short, Wade did not kill Dwight's parents. That was Big Wade, their father. Big Wade's wife, their mother, had an affair with Dwight's father for a long time. And this all came down to you don't go against another man's wife even though that wife was a direct willing participant in this process. Absolutely. And in another situation, you might see that that family would become more connected somehow in those odd ways that sometimes those things go, but not Big Wade. But he did have cancer, and so Little Wade, for lack of a better term, did the time for him. Sonia talks a little bit about Kevin Collick, who plays Teddy, and the fairly thankless task of being this expository character. He considers it one of the best decisions that he made to opt for the best actor for the job rather than someone that might have had more instant name recognition. And the cast seems to reflect that philosophy across the board. There's not a bum note in the thing down to the smallest role. We mentioned that Ben saves Dwight. With Teddy's murder, Dwight has crossed the Rubicon. He knows that they're not going to let this thing in. Not now. And Ben has his number. Ben is good at reading people. I know this is personal. That's how you'll fail. You point the gun, you shoot them. He gives him the best advice he can, but you can see in his eyes he does not have faith. He just saw with Teddy what he imagines will continue to play out. Dwight will keep being Dwight. We arrive here at the one scene that perplexes me a little. I think this might be the one scene that you and I read significantly differently from each other. 
that I may read significantly different than the filmmakers intended. I think it's one of those interesting examples of art as a Rorschach test that's dependent on what we bring to it from our personal experience. When Dwight asks Ben to destroy that photo of them and the stripper, what do you make of that? Actually, nothing. I haven't really thought about it, to be honest. I don't know if it's a holdover from something that you felt badly about earlier in your life that you just want gone. A reminder of who you once were that you aren't anymore. I don't really have any other ideas. What do you think? I think of Dwight as one of those guys that was never here. That that's what he wants now, what he's always wanted, to erase himself. My argument actually picks up parallel to something that you were saying earlier in the show. Think of his life for the last several years. He's adept at living in the wainscoting of society. A ghost in a decaying Pontiac Bonneville. Ben gives me the impression that he just disappeared on them. They turned around and he was gone for 16 years. And on top of all that, he is maintaining an abnormal level of calm about heading into the teeth of what has to be certain death. That resignation that he carries didn't just happen this week. I don't know if it was a reaction to his parents being murdered or if it's something that came before, but it's been there for a long time. I love these next scenes that we see. Ben cleaning up the mess. In the same way that we saw Dwight go back to his sister's house and carefully clean up the glass, we never see the aftermath of this mayhem going on. And there is so much beauty to be found in these moments that Selnier brings us. Dwight indulges in what is subtly indicated to us as a last meal, but can't hold it down. And then he moves on to preparing for this final showdown. He camouflages the car, sneaks onto their property, breaks into the house, cleans out all the guns. So many guns. Does it strike you as odd to see that many guns in one household? Sadly, no. I know that Saulnier didn't intend for this to be a comment on gun culture, which I am thankful for. It would have been a terribly false note, I think, to hammer on that satirically or otherwise. I know some audiences overseas felt it had to be a joke, but it's just a reflection of his own experience and of people he knows, and he just lets it speak for itself. It's definitely people I know. I've been in houses with the gun racks mounted in different locations, right above the family couch. In the same way that it was smart of Dwight when he's at that bar trying to find a gun to look for trucks that have gun racks. My dad now has so many he had to get a second gun safe. And one last thing too, I can't emphasize enough how much I recognize the house that the Clelands live in, this type of property, the decor, the absolute right note that one of the family members who comes after him originally has the crossbow. Everything feels completely on point to me. Coming up, we have what, in a just world, would be the climactic moment for this. Dwight pisses on Wade Sr.'s grave. That should be it. Some measure of retribution is meted out right there, but this is not a just world. In keeping with his behavior until now, Dwight prepares and fortifies the house in a manner that is amateurish, perhaps even childlike. I would argue that maybe this is even a further regression than the yearbook, building a furniture fort. The film remains remarkably consistent at undercutting expectations at every turn, even when we think we know what to expect of Dwight now. That furniture fort is a great touch. It surprised me slightly. He gets comfortable with this, falls asleep, the lights on a timer wake him up, and he passes some time with a family photo album. But he waits all night and no one comes. In the meantime, he buries Teddy. No reason not to be gentlemanly about this thing. He's finally able to bait the Clelands into coming back to the house, and they gather around the answering machine, and he's got them dead to rights. He could finish this right now, but he doesn't. He's waiting for their response to his message, hoping against hope that there's a way out of this, but 
That's why we're going to Pittsburgh is not the answer he is looking for. That seals the deal. At every point, Dwight has tried to stop this. His whole plan to set up the meeting in a public place was to end it peacefully. His waiting for them to respond reasonably to this message was in hopes of it ending peacefully. It's just not going to work. And his sister being threatened is the one thing that he cannot abide. And he has the drop on the Clelands. But he also hasn't noticed that William, this boy that we were introduced to at the very beginning, has the drop on him. William always just hanging out in the car, causing trouble for Dwight. There's a standoff happening here. Dwight was told by Ben, don't make speeches, and that is not what he does. He does manage to kill the Cleland brother, and so it's just the two sisters left, he thinks. He says here that William, this boy, is his father's son meaning his half-brother. And I swear to you, I did not remember that fact from the other viewings. And it occurred to me at the very beginning when I saw the two of them talking together. Though really, maybe I'm giving myself more credit than I deserve. And so William shoots Dwight in the stomach. And Dwight is still speechifying here. Still actually even makes a little joke. This doesn't hurt as much as the arrow. And the saddest part is that this all came from love. My dad loved your mom, and all of us are going to end up dead. This standoff culminates in a beautiful shot that surveys this carnage and pans across a shelf that contains a series of family photos to William. The terminal point, the end of the line, the end of both lines, as it turns out. Dwight sets William free, his father's son. He is still protecting his family to his last breath. I know I've mentioned a few times that Saulnier's style is clean, simple setups. It's not terribly complicated. That assessment does not apply to the family history and the feelings that surround it. It's so beyond salvaging at this point that all there is left to do is for Eve Plum, of all people, to pull a machine gun out from under the recliner and start blasting. Who keeps a machine gun under the lazy boy? It turns out that this, too, is based on an actual example from Saulnier's life. Now, her shot actually kills her own sister. And we don't see the two of them end each other, but we know that that's what has happened. Allowing William a chance to be able to leave. Not just leave, but throw the gun away in the process. And that's why I wasn't thinking escape. Do you think that he is now set on the same path as Dwight? Do you think that he's headed out to kill Dwight's family? His sister and her family? Do you think that he is truly going to be the one that ends all of this? He is absolutely not going to exact any sort of revenge. He didn't even want to do this to Dwight. And there is enough of Dwight's strain of the family in him to want to end this thing. He's been the outsider in the Clelands all along. I can't imagine what it must have been like for him growing up excluded very clearly or self-isolated everyone knowing, if not directly addressing, that he was at least half a bastard. I think he no longer wants to be a participant in any of it. I think he will go off by himself, and if he picks up any of Dwight's tendencies, it will be that to disappear, which is what Dwight is finally doing before our very eyes. As Dwight's life seeps out onto the floor, all he can say repeatedly is, the keys are in the car. The last cruel irony of the whole thing, he was actually getting better at this. Did you feel any of him... Repeating that over and over again, that was his bequest to William? I did, and for a moment, and I think maybe I still do, I thought that he planned it that way. Knowing something he couldn't have known, that William would need a way out. 
We have this denouement of Sam's neighborhood waking up to the destruction left after a huge storm. Footage that they absolutely lucked into, but works really well. And we get this montage of the places that Dwight has been. It plays almost like the coda of John Carpenter's Halloween, where we take a tour of all the places Michael Myers has been now empty. Sonia is no genre novice. This is a common horror device. There's even a pitchfork for Pete's sake. Is Dwight our monster? Jeremy Sonia has specifically talked about how much he loves John Carpenter, by the way. And that this was his opportunity to make a John Carpenter film with the specific characterizations that he wanted to explore. I would argue that Green Room is an extension of that too, actually. And I had read that separately of you expressing that, and I find that so interesting, and it totally puts a different light on that ending for me. Well, I think Dwight's monstrousness is a valid question. The carnage continues long after he knows that there is no longer a legitimate receptacle for his vengeance. Some of that is not his doing, I know. And I know I said earlier that Dwight cannot catch a break. With the way things play out, the cosmic implication could be that he doesn't deserve one, I suppose. Whether you think of Dwight that way or not, what about you? What about your monstrousness? How do you feel about revenge at this point? I love that Jeremy Saulnier wanted to explore this. And he talks about how revenge is basically the most indulgent act you could come up with. I'm not sure I want to say out loud my thoughts on revenge, honestly, because they're very dark and not particularly well balanced. We were talking about something the other day having to do with capital punishment. It's the same thing for me. My views on it have changed as I've aged, and I'm not sure that they do me credit. I know that I have a very deep well of darkness inside of me. And it's coming up right now with this motorcycle that keeps driving through <laughs> our neighborhood and causing us to pause. I have felt my hand shaking because I want to reach for someone's throat. I have made plans in my head about hurting people, all for extremely silly reasons for the most part. And I am concerned that at some point I'm going to act them out. It's when I think clearly for a moment about the repercussions of what those actions would be that I stop myself. But that doesn't change these little plans that I lay out in my head. It's possibly also a consequence of listening and watching so much true crime when I think about the question that these victims' families always seem to get asked. Do you forgive the person who has done this? I would prefer that question never to be asked again. It, to me, is incredibly ridiculous. And the fact that I think it doesn't have to exist in this world, that idea of forgiveness, its necessity, that again frightens me sometimes. So would I be an instrument of this revenge? Do I understand how other people could be? Possibly yes to the first question, definitely yes to the second. Well, I think that's why we make such a good team, because I definitely have some of those same feelings that you do. I understand what you're saying completely. I'm aware enough of myself to know that that impulse is there. I may profess to be anti-capital punishment, and no one has that right and all that, but if someone did something to you or to my sister Haley, in certain circumstances, I could not guarantee their safety. And I don't say that as a strange boast or anything. I'm just aware of my particular pockets of amorality, and I know how close all of us are to that edge sometimes. I will say, and I've mentioned in a previous episode, that I was the victim of a crime. I was stalked many years ago. I can tell you as the person in that position, it didn't turn into angel's revenge. I didn't arm myself. I didn't learn self-defense. 
In the moment, it was terrifying and immobilizing. And the reality was that that person who did this to me, and not only me, to other people as well, I probably could have the physical upper hand of him, and that made no difference. I don't know if that then makes this film even more poignant for me, but it certainly hasn't lessened the hardening, I would say, I feel now, which was different than how I felt then. I'm not going to pretend that there's enough of a near of civility on me to make the promise that I would leave it up to the courts in very specific, extreme circumstances. I just hope that I would be better at it than Dwight. I don't want to end up getting ventilated by Jan Brady. Well, setting all of that aside for the moment, I have a trivia question for okay, you. Okay, what's that? Do you know the name of the film that Jeremy Saunier and Macon Blair made together in 1988 with the following plot? A police officer goes after the coke dealers who killed his partner. I know this isn't the answer, but in a perfect world, I would say One Man Force with John Matuzak. That would be wonderful. The real answer is, and by the way, they made a sequel to it, Mega Cop. <laughs> perfect. It's details like that that make me love these guys, even if I didn't already recognize them. I read a great article in the New York Times. As this movie was coming out, I even remember sending it to you. Because I thought, these are people that are making something that I want to participate in. I want to support what they do. That's one of the reasons why I would have equally have chosen this for my episode. How about you? Well, aside from the merits that we've already discussed, that nails it. The sincerity, its creation, Saulnier and Blair's relationship. I love the fact that it goes all the way back to them making movies in the same driveway together when they were very young kids. These kids have heart. I like how it makes me feel, not necessarily the grim action of the film, but the achievement of the thing existing at all. It's similar to the way I feel every time the Wrens put out a new record. I feel like this is the sound of the good guys winning. Some scrappy kids put on a show and nailed it. We've talked about this before, usually in the context of our band, and there's that feeling that you get when you're working on something and everyone just knows that it's special. That's this. It just comes right off the screen. It's magic. The other big reason is that I love Dwight as a character. I really have deep feelings for him. People who aren't moved by storytelling or art in general, any medium, might find that weird to say. But I feel for this character so much. Macon Blair is a goddamn national treasure. I can count on one hand the movies that give me this particular feeling, and it feels like they have given me a gift. And speaking of gifts, how about you give us the gift of a recommendation for further viewing? I feel the same way about my recommendation. It was a gift given to me. And that is, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Written and directed by Macon Blair. That film, along with Lady Dynamite, were the two gifts that I received in 2017. My two favorite things. I'll save Lady Dynamite for another show. But specifically this film, it was such a breath of fresh air. And at the same time, I would be delighted if it formed the template for a billion other things. I mentioned it was written and directed by Macon Blair. It stars Melanie Linsky, Elijah Wood, and I'm going to give a special shout out to David Yao You're just for you. Right, buddy. Melanie Linsky plays a depressed woman whose home is burglarized, and she finds a new sense of purpose by tracking down the thieves alongside her obnoxious neighbor. As with this film, though, they are completely and dangerously out of their depths. We just talked about Macon Blair delivering a performance for the ages. And we knew he was a great writer. 
Jeremy Saulnier has talked about that many times. But before seeing this film, it wasn't necessarily a gimme that he would write something this great and then get the performances from Melanie Linsky and company that he did as a director. I would also like to mention that he puts in a cameo for the ages. He is a total dick. It's wonderful. He created a role and gave her a place to shine. This is a very funny film, and yet it is grounded in something deeply felt. Now, I mentioned Angel's Revenge earlier. Is that your recommendation? (laughs) No, not even close. My recommendation is Putty Hill from 2010, directed by Matthew Porterfield, starring Sky Ferreira, Zoe Vance, and James Seabor. And it's about a group of young friends in Baltimore that are each trying to find their way to cope with the untimely death of their friend. This one is distributed by Cinema Guild, so you know it's right in my wheelhouse slow and low. Really, this is like shooting coals in a barrel. Non-professional actors, somewhat experimental technique director influenced by people like Robert Brisson and Pedro Costa, staring so deeply at mortality that finally it yields something. If this movie came with a jar of jalapeno bread and butter pickles, I might never need anything else. The connection to Blue Ruin in this case is a very direct one. Jeremy Saulnier is the cinematographer on this film, and it looks characteristically immaculate. If he never wanted to do anything else, he could easily have a long career as one of the great cinematographers of his generation. Fortunately for us, he also wants to write and direct. So once again, that's two great recommendations. I don't feel at home in this world anymore and Putty Hill. And that brings us to the end of episode 80. Right off the bat, I wanted to say a special thanks to a new Patreon supporter this time around, Matthew Watson. Thank you, Matthew. We appreciate that. Ook, Matthew. Ook, old friend. If you want to check out the perks that our Patreon has to offer, you can find all that at patreon.com slash magiclantern. Otherwise, if you just want to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us there. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Tim Lego, Grindhouse Dave, Jeff Duncanson, Andy Wolverton, Mike Scharf, Daisuke Beppu, Drew Tavendale and the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, Chad Engelbert, Ryan Jewell, Jiro Hong, and the wonderful folks at the Toronto True Crime Film Festival. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.